0: Galatians 3, 26, um, from the New Living Translation. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ... You are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than the slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything their father had. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who are slaves to the law so he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child, and since you are his child, God has made you his heir.
1: So I just want to welcome you, and thank you for coming. Uh, Before we dive into uh, this morning, I do want to say a few things have happened this last week, pastorally, uh, particularly around the area of uh, vulnerability and struggles that people have in their lives, and I just want to say I was struck by how God meets us often in our weakness. I want to say, I think weakness is actually strength. Culturally, we don't say that. So when we talk about church, or family, being the body of Christ together, what we're actually saying is, how do we walk with one another and love one another well, even in our struggles? Church has often been a place where we come and put on a mask and we assume, I have to put on my best self. I do want to say, so I think actually... This week, what I've seen demonstrated is people saying, I may be struggling in this area, but I want to be vulnerable enough for the presence of God to allow healing in my life. So as a church, we always want to say that. How do we come in our brokenness and our weakness and love and support one another? Now, this morning, I have a really nice, easy topic to talk about that has never had any baggage connected with it in the history of the church. This morning, I want to talk about women, Jesus, and leadership and how they work together. I do recognize there's the irony of a white male talking about this this morning. And next week, we're going to have a follow-up conversation led by a group of women in our community who will be talking about this. So this morning, I'm really doing a theological setup for what will happen next week. Before we dive into the topic itself, there's a few things I do want to say that will help frame our conversation this morning, and they're not part of the theological discussion, but they're a helpful way to look at the discussion this morning. The first is I'm going to be talking about women in leadership in the church. This conversation is much bigger than this in some ways, and so I realized I had hours worth of material because there have been books and there's been so much conversation written about this that it'd be unjust for me to say in half an hour here's the answer but I do want to say I'm talking about women in leadership in the church because there's lots of other things I could say in relation to the home and marriage workplace society as well and so I'm specifically going to be honing in on women in leadership within the local church I want to say as well when we come to this conversation, if you've come from a church background, a church background often can affect how we see this topic. Sometimes beautifully, and sometimes actually very painfully. I was very aware this morning, and I'm going to come back to this later. That for some people this morning, this is a painful topic to talk about. There's, I'm sure there's many women in our community who actually have felt maybe called by God and this depending on how reactions happen within their church growing up, it's caused hurt and pain. And so I want to recognize that right at the start. Last week, Dave preached on unity as a precursor to this morning, and that was very intentional. Dave talked about unity and how our posture as we practice unity together should have certain things that that plays out in certain ways. Dave talked about humility, patience, Presence, as in being present with one another, not doing all of our conversation online, and also this idea of repentance. And I want to say that's really helpful as we approach this topic, particularly the point of humility. I want to say we should always be humble theologians. Because as we walk with God and we learn, we actually recognize that sometimes we change our view on certain things depending on how we grew up and in certain contexts. I have this line that I often use in my friends who would disagree with me theologically. I say to them, oh, you're assuming you're not a heretic. See, I'm always holding up humbly my theology to say I might be wrong. Now, we should have deep conviction about certain things. That doesn't mean we don't have conviction on topics. But I think we have to approach it by saying, as Paul might say in Corinthians, we know in part, but we see in some ways through a mirror dimly. So we don't know everything. And I think that's important. One of the last things I want to say is whenever we come to a topic like this or a contentious issue in a community sometimes people approach it like this. I'm going to listen really carefully to what the person says so I can catch them out on what they said. I know none of you have ever. I know I've never done that. Um, But I want to say this morning, my hope is that when we talk about really challenging things, the question is, how does this compel us to Christ? and to be more like Jesus. See, sometimes our goal can be to win an argument, not help someone else grow in their walk with Jesus and become more Christ-like. And I think that's really important too as we work this out. Now, in this conversation about women in leadership, within the church community, there have been two words that have kind of uh, framed this debate over the years. There's two words that are complementarian and egalitarian. And I want to say right from the outset, often these have not been helpful at all, partly because we use them and we don't always understand them. So they don't seem to make sense. But also within both sides, there's a massive spectrum. There's people who some would say are hard egalitarian and soft egalitarian, and some would be like hard complementarian, and some would be soft complementarian. I'm gonna explain what they are, but that's really important because sometimes on some issues, an, an egalitarian who's soft on one thing and a complementarian who's soft would have more in common than people at the extremes of the debate. So I think that's important. So, complementarian historically has said that male and female are made in the image of God with distinct genders, but they have different roles in the church and in the home. So they complement one another. But in this side of the argument, people would say that men are called to lead and women are called to follow. Men are called to teach, and women are called to support. They're made in the image of God, and women have a role within the church. That's very important, but there does seem to be a sense of hierarchy in how they understand it. Now, again, within that, there's, again, different extremes. The softer complementarians, of which I think that's the majority, I would say, would say that men and women are different, but within the church, men specifically would hold the role of pastor or elder, in leadership, but all the other offices are open to women. The egalitarian side, egalitarian means equality, would say men and women are made in the image of God with distinct genders, but all roles would be open within the home and the church. There'd be a flattening of those roles, so there isn't a sense of hierarchy, and both male and female could hold different roles and positions. I want to be very clear, both sides of the debate have caused pain and harm. It's not like one side, uh, they're all great, and there's never been any contentious issue. Both sides have been challenged, and partly because often this issue is about power. And who has the power? I'm going to reference my sermon from a few weeks ago that says, power's a gift. The question is, how do we leverage it? on behalf of others and those that don't have it. At St. Clair Community Church, as you can probably tell, we fully believe in women in leadership. But I think we'd want to reclaim the view that though men and women may be different in certain ways, they complement each other without hierarchy. And they're called to lead and teach together in the church and to lay down their power, both of them, in service of others. So as you can tell, we land on a certain perspective in this whole conversation. Now, it might be easy to say when you hear what I've said about complementary egalitarian, well, it seems really obvious when we look around at culture about how this would go. But I do want to say when we approach this conversation, the scripture is the starting point for us. How do we read the scripture and what is, this is a fancy theological term, what is our hermeneutic, which is how do we interpret the scripture? Because how we interpret the scripture informs how we live in the world and also how we live in the church as community. As we think about this topic, I do think there's some other things to say, that when we look at a certain topic, what we want to ask is, what does the scripture say about it? What does the history of the church say? Because obviously throughout the centuries of the church, there were certain perspectives. And also what is our personal experience? That's really important. But often in certain topics, we start with our personal experience and try and work our way back. Now I think cultural understanding and anthropology, is the fancy word, is really important but this morning, I want to talk about it from the scriptural perspective. And I do want to say this. This is one of my frustrations coming out. If you, Historically, if you've believed in women in leadership in the church, one of the criticisms is you're cultural and progressive, and the complementarian side is biblical. That is terrible. I would say I believe in women in leadership in the church because of how I read the Bible. So this is a biblical conversation. I also want to say there are thoughtful, intelligent people on both sides of the debate. You've never probably seen this. But sometimes in TV shows, they'll get people on different sides of the debate. And I love this. They'll get like a PhD with also four masters who won the Nobel Peace Prize on one side. And then they'll get Bob, who one day was walking through a field in Saskatchewan and had a vision. And they'll put him up against the other person and go, well, obviously... This is the right thing. And I would say sometimes that bothers me because in both sides of the debate, there are intelligent theologians who know more than I do. So I want to be clear on that. I also want to say that people who haven't always given women a space of leadership in the church who might be complementarian, for the most part, are loving, godly people. They're not always chauvinistic. Sometimes, again, it's been hurtful, but often they're trying to be faithful to the Scripture and how they read it. That's why they're holding on to that viewpoint. Now, as we approach the Scripture and do our hermeneutics, our interpretation, there are a few other things that I want to say this morning. One is we need to look at the full sweep of Scripture and the whole of the story. Most of us, myself included, love a point of view, so I grab the one verse that will trump every other verse. But we're actually talking about the whole of the narrative of God's story. The second is we do believe the scripture is the inspired word of God. But we also understand that the scripture is given to a specific cultural context. And that is really important. When Paul, as we'll get to later, is writing, or in the Old Testament, when we understand the context, it is different, shockingly, to Hamilton, Ontario in 2019. So we have to understand that as we approach it. Also, there are different genres and language within the scripture. And I do want to specifically say some of the debate on this topic is about singular words themselves. There is one word in some of this conversation that could have potentially 12 different meanings as we interpret it. So a lot of it is how we interpret that. So it's not as easy as, well, it says this in English. That is obvious. There's so much more going on here. I want to say one of my other things is I'm not a PhD on this topic. I'm a practicing theologian, which means I'm a local church pastor trying to figure this out. I've done my PhD and read everything that was ever written on this topic. So there will be a massive amount of holes in what I'm saying in half an hour this morning. But I want to say that we all should come and at least wrestle with this topic. I get concerned when someone says to me passionately, I have this thesis on this part of life And I say to them, where did you get that? And they say, well, I read a tweet and a portion in a blog. That always makes me nervous. because I think we should at least do our homework. Or in some subjects, I would say, I honestly just haven't done my homework. This is what I think. That's actually, we might as well be honest about that. But I don't claim necessarily to be an expert, expert here, but a pastor. Okay. With that in mind, that was the setup. I know most people are like, let's pray and go home. But (laughs) thanks, Matt, for that. We're already reeling from that bit. But I think it is really important because what I'm trying to do this morning is say, how do we study the text? And that's really important. How do we approach this? So in Galatians, the passage that Rebecca read beautifully, it says this. In Galatians 3, verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, having clothed yourselves with Christ. Paul pretty clearly sets out here that all people are made in the image of God equally. This is a reference back to Genesis, obviously, Genesis 128, where it says God made mankind in his image, and then it says to them, I'm calling you to steward, have dominion, Over creation. I would say there that seems to be God saying, both of you have dominion over creation. Like when God creates mankind in his image, he says, now I want you to steward this together. Later on in Genesis chapter 2, The headset is way easier. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Then God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. When we read the word in English, helper, we can often think, Oh, God made man and then he created woman to do the taxes and the gardening and do the dishes and help out a little bit. We joke, but actually sometimes that's how that's actually been interpreted. But actually the word here in Hebrew is the word ezer, or we might translate it ezer. And what's interesting is this word, when used throughout the Old Testament, the majority of the time is used for God. In fact, the word ezer means a powerful act of rescue and support. So helper isn't this idea of helping out with the things that are left over. This is the sense of strengthening and coming alongside and bringing some sense of rescue when the other person needs it. And if you do a word search on the word Asa, you'll see it over and over in the whole of the Old Testament as being a word for God supporting Israel. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there is male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It seems to me here Paul is saying, within the church, there is no sense of hierarchy based on gender, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status. We might go, (laughs) obviously, that is pretty radical in the time that Paul is writing. Paul has often got a bad press. Some could argue sometimes rightly so, by saying Paul seems to be exclusive, and at times he feels a bit like a male chauvinist. But actually, Paul often is very inclusive, particularly for the cultural moment he's speaking into. Here's why this is important. This was a prayer that was read regularly in the synagogue in Paul's day. I thank you, God, And I am glad that I was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That was read in the synagogue. And then Paul comes along and says, oh, by the way, in the church, we're all equally seen under Christ and image bearers. Which I think lends the question. Now, I do want to say this scripture, you could push back and say, Matt, this isn't talking about leadership within the church. Which might be fair, but I think it is talking about how we see one another equally within the church and what roles and functions we can play, which I think then leads us to ask have women, in light of that, been allowed to lead within the church when we look at the scripture? And when we look at the Old Testament, we see women continually being allowed to lead within the nation of Israel. Obviously, the church wasn't formed then, but as we look, whether it's uh, Miriam or Deborah in the book of Judges or esther or even there's a prophet called holder over and over there's just a few there's way more than that there's different women in the old testament who are called to lead within the nation of israel and then we get to the new testament and we read about lots of different women involved in leadership one of the key pieces of scripture for this i think is romans chapter 16 the end of romans is often seen as a phone directory and we read brush pastics we're like oh Paul here is just basically giving greetings to loads of people. I don't really have time to that. I want to get on to all the good stuff Um, and all Paul's teaching on theology. But I actually think Romans 16 is very, very important as we think about leadership within the church. Because within this, Paul says, I'm giving greetings to certain people serving within the body of Christ. Verse 1, I commend to our sister Phoebe as a deacon within the church verse 3 greet priscilla who is a female and aquila my fellow co-workers in christ jesus paul puts the woman first there verse 5 greet also the church that meets in their house verse 7 greet andronicus and junia my fellow jews junia there is a name that's been debated for years about but in most Times in that cultural context, junior is the name for a woman. They are outstanding among the apostles. In Philippians chapter four, Paul again is talking about some situations. In Philippians four, verse two, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche, English people are linguists, To be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Paul talks about them being co-laborers, which to Paul often is their co-leaders, when he uses that in different places, within the church. There's lots of other examples I could give, but it seems to be when the church was formed, there were certain women involved in leadership. Within the church. Verse six of Galatians, because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Whenever we read about the Spirit of God falling on his people in the New Testament, the Spirit of God and the gifts that are given by the Spirit don't seem to be tied to gender. Whenever the gifts are mentioned, It's not, oh, and by the way, these are specifically for the men. In fact, a Pentecost, it says, the spirit will be poured out on all people, which is a prophecy back to Joel chapter two, both male and female, the spirit will be poured out on them. Verse seven, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Paul is reminding the church in Galatia of their identity in Christ, that they are all, everyone in the church, heirs to an inheritance that Christ has given them. And when we see the role of Jesus, and particularly how Jesus treats women, we see something very interesting. He seems to be saying that they also have a deep sense of inheritance in the gospel. When we look at the life of Jesus, the birth narrative of Jesus starts out with three pretty key women who actually are giving prophetic words there's Mary Elizabeth or Anna we have the story of Simeon and Anna at the temple in Luke chapter 8 when it talks about the disciples that are gathered around Jesus verse 1 to 3 it talks about these prominent women who are funding Jesus's ministry So they seem to be there with the disciples as they're following Jesus. We get to John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman. The scripture specifically states Jesus is doing something that's outside of the cultural norms because the Samaritan woman says, how could you associate with me? Then Jesus has this theological dialogue and sends her back to a village as an evangelist to speak to them. I love that he takes someone who feels full of shame. And then actually commissions them into the kingdom. Luke chapter 10 is this story of Mary and Martha. And what's interesting is, historically in the church, we've said, oh, Jesus is saying, slow down and don't do too much work, because Martha's in the kitchen doing work and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. There is some sense of slowing down, but what is going on here is way more radical. A woman, Mary, has entered a very male space in a male-dominated culture, and Jesus has said, Mary's chosen the right thing. And in fact, to be sitting at the feet of Jesus as a rabbi, Jesus says, this is where she needs to be. She's learning from me as a rabbi is teaching a disciple. That's really radical. There's loads more examples, but another one of the most prominent ones to me is John chapter 20 in the resurrection account. It says, Uh, one point of note, and I do need to say this, at the cross, it's all the guys who bail. Anyway, so the women seem to be there, right? The women are like, oh yes, we will remain here faithful to you. Um, But in the resurrection account, it says Jesus, Mary sees Jesus, and actually it says Mary doesn't recognize him. So Jesus doesn't, I don't think, have to at that point reveal his identity. There's a question I was thinking about this week. Right, he could have just ignored her to some degree or later on decided, I'll reveal myself to Mary later. But there's this interaction, and finally it says, Mary sees that it's Jesus, and then he says, now go to the disciples and tell them. The apostolic movement of new creation in the church starts with a woman, which I think is really important and significant. And the fact that's in the Bible, as we've said many times at St. Clair, is interesting. Because in that culture, the testimony of a woman would not always have been considered in a court of law. And yet they say, no, the movement of new creation in the church starts with a woman's declaration. So you might be sitting there thinking, well, this is great, Matt. Um, Obviously, you have convinced me. There may be others of you saying, I love that, and I kind of agree with you, but there are some scriptures that really bother me in the Bible. And so I'm just going to look at two of those this morning to close out our time that have often been at the front and center of the debate around whether women shouldn't be in leadership in the church. I don't want to say there's more than this, but these are two that often come up over and over as significant. The first one is 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 14. And I'm going to start uh, in verse 33, because that's significant. This is Paul talking about worship in the church context and how this service would go. Verse 33. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregation of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in churches. They are not allowed to speak but we must be in full submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Ooh, I was kind of convinced, Matt, but now you've laid this out, that is not very helpful to me. A couple of things, very interesting. In First Corinthians 11, Verse 5, Paul has said, when women prophesy and pray in the church, I want them to cover their heads, that's a cultural thing. So is Paul contradicting himself? Because he has actually said earlier, women should pray and prophesy within the church. Chapter 14 is talking about um, how Sunday gatherings should go and how Sunday worship should be. One biblical scholar who grew up in the Middle East and did all of his studies there, Kenneth Bailey, says within that culture, a lot of the time, women wouldn't be as educated as the men just because of the nature of the culture. And in that culture, men and women would sit on different sides of the church. That was common. And so when someone was speaking, often it may have been around a theological issue or even with a dialect that maybe the women wouldn't have understood because of their education. And so they're talking amongst themselves about what is happening. And Kenneth Bailey says that still happens in the church today. And what Paul is trying to say is if you keep talking like that, it's actually disrupting what is going on in terms of worship within the church. In all of these things, there is a lot of, you could give me loads of pushback. I'm just giving an explanation and I would love to talk about that. The second is First Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. This is a goodie. Uh, Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I do want to pause there. Whenever we get into this, we bypass some very important things in order to get to a debate. Men are meant to be passionate about prayer and worship and not have anger or dispute amongst them. But we don't talk about that because there's other stuff going on. If you're a male, you should be deeply challenged by that. As we conduct ourselves in the church. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls, put those in the offering after, or expensive clothing, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Here we go, that's the setup. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume key word authority over a man she must be quiet for adam was formed first then eve and adam was not the one deceived it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith love and holiness with propriety it was going so well right like oh man thanks a lot paul you've caused more trouble I talked earlier about the narrative. So I think because of the sweep of scripture, women should be involved in leadership in the church. As we've talked, and there's lots of other examples. So I would say, I think in this instance, and people will disagree with me, there's a lot of cultural context that needs to be understood as Paul is writing to Timothy. So Paul is writing to Timothy in the city of Ephesus. What's important about that is the dominant religion or cultural practice in the city of Ephesus is the worship of the Greek goddess Artemis. And you can see that in Acts chapter 19. When Paul goes to Ephesus and he preaches, it says there's a riot because Paul is preaching against Artemis. So that's a historical context. Why is that important? In the cult of the Greek goddess Artemis, women assumed all of the leadership roles and actually repressing men in that movement. It's also assumed that within that, there was a stream of Gnosticism, which is a type of thought that would say, when when the woman, Eve, took the fruit, she actually was exposed to a higher sense of knowledge than the men. That's why the women had leadership. So, bear in mind, so why is that important? If people are coming to faith in Jesus and entering into the church, is there an assumption we now need to take over? Because Paul says, specifically the word, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume now authority over a man. So what Paul is trying to do here is saying, as you are coming to faith, this isn't a natural, we've got to overthrow everything. But over time, how do we come to a joint leadership position? The reason I think that's also important is Paul does say, a woman should learn in quietness and submission. So Paul is saying, again, culturally, because women weren't as educated, especially theologically, all women should be given space to learn. What's interesting is the word quiet at the end of this is actually, it's hard to describe, the word quiet is almost like space and a leisure word that's used for quietness and space to take the time to learn. It's almost like they need time for solitude so that they can learn. So Paul is saying here, women should be learning Also, the word submission there I think is important because he doesn't actually say, I think this is important, and you again could push back on me. Women should learn and be in full submission, but he doesn't say to men. I think Paul is saying women should learn and be in full submission to God in their learning, just like the men should. Uh, N.T. Wright uh, says this when translating this. He said, you could translate this this way. I don't mean to imply that I'm now setting up women as the new authority over men in the same way that previously men had held authority over women. He translates the whole of this text that I've read like this. Again, there could be debate and T. Wright knows more than I do. So I'm going to read what he wrote about this passage in, Timothy, in 1 Timothy. So this is what I want. The men should pray in every place, lifting up holy hands with no anger or disputing. In the same way, the women too should clothe themselves in an appropriate manner, modestly and sensibly. They should not go in for elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or extensive clothes. Instead, as is appropriate for women who profess to be godly, they should adorn themselves with good works. I'm just going to pause. The word good works there actually is a word for how we create culture in society, which I love. So that, not to Ephesians chapter 2. But he seems to be saying, oh, women should actually not have all of these expensive things because they're actually necessarily bad in and of themselves, but actually what if they spent their money on things that would actually benefit the culture around them? They, should, they must be allowed to study undisturbed in full submission to God. I'm not saying that women should teach men or try to dictate to them. They should be left undisturbed. Adam was created first, you see, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and fell into trespass. She will, however, be kept safe the process of childbirth if she continues in faith, love, holiness, and prudence. I have a whole other thing on that last part about childbirth that you can talk to me about. Because um, there's so much more to say, and I'm very aware of time. I'm going to close out, and I'm going to invite Elaine in a moment to come and lead us in communion. But there's two things I do want to say as we close practically at St. Clair. One is, in light of this whole conversation, Sinclair doesn't necessarily believe in quotas. So we're not saying we just need to bolster numbers of male or female in any areas of leadership in our church, but we do massively believe in representation. How do we have people called by God in their gifting, both male or female, to represent us in leadership in the church? The second thing is, and this is my close, some of us here who are women have felt called by God and gifted by God and have been treated pretty terribly, have been hurt, have been told there is no room for you to use your gifting in the church. And I just want to say this morning, I am sorry, and I hope you'll learn to forgive the church because that's not been right. We have to create space, and St. Clair needs more and more to create space for women who feel called and gifted by God to use their gifts within the church. So I just want to say I recognize that, and for some of you this morning, as I close out, I would just love to pray for you, because some of you, this is deeply painful, and you've been told, because you're a woman, you can't use your gifts and call to follow Jesus. And I just want to say that is not true. Some of you here, Dave had a word earlier that was really powerful. Dave felt like for some people this morning, this might be the seed of them stepping in to the thing God has called them to do. For some of you as women, maybe you felt for years, there is no space for me. And maybe this morning the seed is just starting to sprout because we would say, we need you to use your gifts in this community. If at Sinclair, St. we close with a benediction, which is a blessing. I'm going to say over you before I do that, one quick thing. If there's anything that I said this morning that you think, I would love to grab a cup of coffee with you because I would like some clarity on some stuff. That's definitely encouraged. I realise this morning, like I said, I can only say so much, but hopefully if there's things you want to chat through, I'd love to do that with you. That's my favorite part about pastoral life is to have the journey with people as we discuss these important things together. I'm going to say a blessing over you as you leave this morning. As I said, uh, a blessing is really important, I think, in our culture that loves to criticize, to bless people. It seems really powerful. One thought I, I had in worship uh, before the blessing is, often a prayer I praise from the, uh, I was going to joke, the female theologian, Marge, Marva Dawn, which is true. She says, may this worship put to death in me the things that need to die so that you can bring life to the things you need to bring life to. So St. Clair, friends and family, as you go this week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you his peace.